grew up going to church, but I don't think I understood who God was, was. Or I didn't understand the concept of grace. Like, I understood, like, God is a God, a sovereign God. God is holy. I understood God is big. God is powerful. But I didn't understand the idea that God, that I don't, I don't always see lived out in grace, lived out in the hood. Because you have to hustle to be able to get out of it, you know. Like, you, you in order for you to be able to make it out and be something, you actually have to work really hard and prove yourself worthy. And so intellectually, I, I can understand God loves me, but I can't, I practically couldn't see that, you know, all the time. You have to work, I mean, I had to hustle to get to college, you know, <laughs> to make it. So, so I, in college, I learned what grace was. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Listener is celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month through the staff we feature. And today's guest is Dina Martinez, team leader in North LA for both Cruz Inner City Ministry and for Destino, Cruz Ministry through and to Latinos. Enjoy the show. I met your teammate, Kai Pottinger. Yes. Uh, is that how you say his name? <laughs> At the at the gatherings in Colorado, the large gatherings, that was so fun because we got to be with not just like we've always been with Northwest staff, which is great, but getting to be with staff from another cohort was really fun. And so my little process group, one of the uh, members was Kai. So and he's on your and so you're Destino in the Los Angeles area. Is that right? Yes, I am the Destino, like the North LA team. So, okay, um, we North have LA. a South team and an LA team. Yeah. Yeah. So, how long have you been with that team, with Destino there? Um, I, this is my second year here. Or, well, well, this is my third year. I'm going into the third year, but um, I've been. It's a little bit, not a long time. <laughs> Can you tell us more about your story coming on staff? Yeah, so I've been on staff now for nine years, going into 10, so 2010. I joined, I went to school in Santa Barbara at UCSB, and then I joined there mm-hmm. in 2010. I interned for two years there, and then I decided to, um, when I joined staff, to go into San Diego. So I I came in through the crew, the crew branch, but then I transitioned into Destino. And then I was there for four years. I raised support for two years, like, and then I stayed in San Diego for since in 2016. And then I came here into LA. But I was born and raised in LA, so I grew up in LA, okay. um, and that's why everything's always been two hours distance because I'm very close to my family. Mm. <laughs> so I mm-hmm. um, I went to school two hours north, and then when I decided to join, I went two hours south. And I actually didn't really like going, like being part of, like going to LA. Like I just was like, no, I'm never gonna go back there. And then eventually, really, yeah, I, I was like, I hate LA. I don't want to live there no more. It's too crowded. It's too much. And then, I did a summer mission trip to the inner city, um, LA. Like, what ended? Okay, do you want the long version or the short version? <laughs> I want the medium version. Okay. <laughs> I in between ended, long and short. <laughs> I ended up um, being asked to direct that summer mission because um, 
they needed somebody to continue the partnership between the inner city and the Stino um, summer mission in L.A. And they're like, you're from L.A., would you want to do this? I didn't want to do it because I wanted to go to the med, but my dad was sick, so that's why I was like, okay, I should probably stay in local. So that's how mm-hmm. I ended up staying in L.A., reluctantly, because I did not want to stay. And then I, um, in that process, got really, like, just made me fall in love again with the city. And I think I just saw, mm. I think it was hard to understand how to, like, do campus ministry in my, with, in my community. Like, you learn all these things in campus ministry, and it's, but there, I, I live in the inner city, so I live, it's very low-income, like, broken community. And so it, it was hard for me to, like, apply everything I was learning in that city. It just, bro- it breaks down, you know, like, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. So with mm-hmm. inner city, I learned that there was actual ways long term how to, like, care for the city and that God cares about restorative justice and God cares about, you know, not just saying what we're going to, like, saying the gospel by living it out. And so they just gave me practical ways to live it out. And so in that process of doing that, my, my, they started working with my dad's church. And so I was like, oh, my, I've never worked with my dad, like, ministry together. And I've been on staff for, like, at that point, like, seven years, you know. And my mm-hmm. dad and I are really starting to work together. And so I love that about the inner city, that there was room for that, there was space for that. So after praying about it for a long time, I prayed for about a year and then, because I was pretty hesitant. I was like, I feel God's calling me to LA, but I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. it took me like about a year to say yes and then, then come here. And then God had given me a vision for what it could look like. And so I was like, I think I know, I have an idea of what we're supposed to do. And then I just asked the both of the team leaders, like, can, is this doable? Like, I know it sounds crazy, but can, can I be part-time? So I'm part-time inner city and part-time Justino. Oh, and okay. So that's how this whole thing went down. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm actually a team leader for both teams. I, I am a team lead in inner city and Destino. And essentially we have a partnership together. We work very closely together because there's a middleman <laughs> who kind of can go mm-hmm. back and forth. And we had a bunch of conversations prior to me actually stepping foot into the city because of the same thing. I'm like, if this is actually going to be a partnership, we need to work together. I don't want to be working 80 hours. <laughs> so how can we actually mm-hmm. live this out? And is it practical? And so they're really open to it. So they said yes. <laughs> and that's so how you're I the middleman. You're the middle woman. Middle woman. I'm the middle woman. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, now it's actually That's becoming cool. so I don't have to be like now Kai and Lauren and, and Tom Norris, which is the other they and Lauren, they'll talk and email each other as if we're all one team. We do all our staff mm-hmm. development together. We've been doing that for the last year and we do cultural competency together for the last mm-hmm. year. And so if I'm going to be teaching, training people, I was like, I can't overextend myself and I don't want to be teaching twice. So how do we do it so we consolidate as many things as we can possible? So it's like a big mm-hmm. ecosystem here. It, it, it's really, it's a really, it's a big hybrid of a lot of things. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. which is good because I don't have to do all the work all the time now. But the first year, it was mm-hmm. a lot of like, uh, you know, more of like trying to communicate what exactly would it look like for us? Like figuring out what it would look like to work 
together. We knew we want to work together. Mm-hmm. We just don't know how. The second year yeah. was more like, here's what we can do. And then they actually having the relationship so that I'm not the only one going back and forth. Just, can you just clarify what Destino? Destino is a ministry to... Destino is a ministry to to and through Latinos. So we want to, we essentially we're trying to build the next generation of Latino leadership. Um, So we want to give a lift and a voice to that community and center their voice um, because they have a story to tell so that they can, you know, empower others to lead and and specifically in, in their faith. And so, we want to uh, essentially win built Zen within the mm-hmm. Latino community. And so our values look a little different, but they're still the same. So you mentioned doing ministry with your dad. Did you grow up in church? Did you grow up a Christian? Or what did that look like in your household growing up? Yeah, so I grew up, um, yeah, I grew up, my dad's a pastor. Um, my, okay. my parents are from El Salvador. So they mm-hmm. migrated here in the 80s during the Civil War of El Salvador and then my dad was already a Christian so they met at a church and that's how they got married here (laughs) um and then my dad has been pastoring for like now like about 29 years everything's in Spanish so it's like a immigrant church it feels like a safe haven for a lot of people who come from other countries or migrate from other countries specifically from Latin America this is like their safe haven um, I grew up going to church like that, so that's kind of was my mindset. I thought Jesus only spoke Spanish, you know, <laughs> type of thing. But <laughs> and then I went to school in Santa, and I grew up in the inner city, so I grew up around Latinos and blacks and black people. Like I didn't really see white people. I had like a few, maybe like one or a couple white teachers that I could kind of remember, like, but not never like friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And so then when I went to Santa Barbara, which is like at that time was 60 percent white and mm-hmm. it's like beach white is not like it's not like other there's like a specific type of white in California. <laughs> I don't know how to explain <laughs> to people, but you know what Wait, I mean? Beach white. I don't know what that is. Like, you know, like from the beach, coastal, like a, a little bit more rich, like, oh, okay. you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. More upper middle class. <laughs> Okay. California, like stereotype vibes, you know. Yeah. Like yeah. bleach blonde hair with bright blue eyes, mm-hmm. you know. Because <laughs> yeah, but any like likes to surf. It's it's a stereotype. <laughs> I know I'm generalizing, but it's like most of those people in that school were like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Santa Barbara is like right on the coastline of um, mm. north of LA, so. Um, there's a culture mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. And yeah how'd you end up at that school? I got accepted. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, cause, okay. So I grew up in the inner city. So the lot of the, um, I was in this upper bound math, upper bound math, like it's a college bound program, upper bound math science. Mm-hmm. And so you have to get in, you test it to get in. So all my sisters and I tested to get into this program. They only take 60 people from the inner city to, to, they only mm-hmm. accept a few people. And then they essentially prep you to go to college. You have to take Saturday classes. You have to, um, you, t- you start practicing for your SATs, 10th grade. You you take summer courses. I mean, I was living in USC for a month, like a month in the summer to catch up, to be able to, like, get college ready, essentially. Mm-hmm. So when I, they essentially did a bunch of, I, I, I started applying. They helped me essentially apply to school and then 
essentially I got accepted into 10 different schools and they say, okay, this is the best one. This is the one we recommend you should go. And then I sat in a catalog. It looked pretty. And I was like, yes, I'll go to that. <laughs> and then when I got there, I was like, oh, no, what did I sign up for? <laughs> Yeah, I say that because I, I grew up going to church, but I don't think I understood who God was, was. Or I didn't understand the concept of grace. Like, I understood, like, God is a God, a sovereign God. God is holy. I understood God is big. God is powerful. But I didn't understand the idea that God, I hadn't understand the idea of, like, relationship, that the grace part. And I think they told me mm-hmm. I just didn't get it because I didn't always see that lived out. I don't, I don't always see lived out in grace, lived out in the hood because you have to hustle to be able to get out of it, you know? And so, mm-hmm. well, I, maybe you don't know, so maybe I need to clarify that. But, like, you, you, in order for you to be able to make it out and be something, you actually have to work really hard um, and prove yourself worthy mm-hmm. to be able to get to something. And so, intellectually, I, I, I can understand God loves me, but I can't, I practically don't see that couldn't see that you know all the time because you could tell me you there's grace but really like you have to work I mean I have to hustle to get to college you know <laughs> to mm-hmm. make it so and I mean I hustle like every day you wake up at, I had a schedule from 5 a.m essentially to midnight every day um to be able to 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 do stuff till Saturday and then Sundays we had to go to church so literally every day <laughs> but um so I in college I learned what grace was and then I think it was through not the crew movement because when I went to crew for the first time I was overwhelmed because it was like 350 white people like maybe there was like three or two ethnic minorities for sure not 10 I was like maybe the third or the fourth out of 350 so it was overwhelming and i never seen i'd never first of all, i never seen that many white people in a room let, let alone that many white people worship jesus like i just never seen that so that was already weird to me <laughs> but then the preacher was talking about or the, the the speaker was talking about grace and like the idea of like god loves you and you know that you don't have to earn your salvation and so it just stuck with me. Like, I like how he would preach, so I would always go to the thing. And then my junior year, when I was getting ready to apply to college, um, I mean, to, to apply to be an intern, to, to, to help lead Destino, they were, I were filling out my applications. And, like, you know, and then the application, I was like, oh, crap, I'm not going to get in. I've done so many bad things. <laughs> but that was one of the first time where I felt like I, I, I knew that I wasn't necessarily legitimate in my application but I couldn't lie because it's a Christian application but (laughs) I look back now I'm like people lie in those things all the time (laughs) I don't know why in my mind I just couldn't and and because of that when they were doing the interview the lady said well yeah you do need to work on these things but you're still accepted and I just started crying because I was like I think this is the first time I've experienced grace like I get it Mm -hmm. I physically like I intellectually and like in my heart I get it now and so I was so excited that they had given me grace for my sins. <laughs> and so, and then I had to like sit with somebody and actually process and they were telling me about their junk and I was like, oh crap, okay. Like we're both sinners. I guess this can, 
this can work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. but then it motivated me enough to be like, oh, I need to walk with God now. Like, legitimately walk with God. I mean, I was already walking with God, but I felt like I had more, I felt more loved by God in that moment. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what, why, how I came to know, know God, like, you know, knowing intellectually, but like my heart knowing, like having assurance for like the first time. So, Dina, the first time I met you in person was in June in Orlando at those, the first round of the strategic planning process meetings. Yes, yes, yes. So I wanted to ask you what those meetings were like for you. Particularly, there was a time on the second day where um, different staff were giving feedback to the leaders who were leading the process. And... Um, really good feedback. And one of the things I remember you saying, correct me if I get this wrong, is someone had shared from the front using a rafting analogy. And I remember you just being like raising your hand and going, I don't know what you, I don't understand this rafting analogy that you're using, which I thought was so direct and brave of you to just be like, can you explain this for me? Tell me more about that when you shared that. (laughs) (laughs) okay first of all i've learned how to communicate directly after being on staff for nine years if you do not know how to communicate directly i don't care if you're puc they will teach you they will make you learn you will not make it you couldn't survive in crew and not be direct which is not Mm. okay by the way but it's just reality it's not fair but it's reality and so Yes, it took a lot of. I was sweating the whole time as I was getting to raise my hand. If I would have been a, if I would have been a first or second year staff, I don't think I, I would have not have done that. I would have been googling what does rafting look like, you know. <laughs> but um, I think I just did it so that because I wanted that person to be aware that everything that they're saying, not everything that they're saying. Um, that he does have a culture and he has a context that he needs to be aware of that just like I'm aware of my culture and my context if he's trying to talk to is he trying to talk to all of us to to me or is he talking just to the white people in the room that are going to get it you know and so that's kind of why I said it but also because I was wondering in my in my mind I was thinking like if I have enough if I had a younger staff person here who was from my community and sitting in this room with me, will they be able to relate to this dude? And if they can't relate to them, then this room isn't for them. And so, therefore, there's no space for them here. And so it was just a way to help somebody, maybe, if they got it. I don't know. It was an indir- It was more indirect in the sense of, like, hey, man, maybe you should learn a little bit more about it. Like, find other analogies. So it was indirect in that way. I should have directly just given that feedback. <laughs> But it was direct in the sense of saying, I don't get it. So it was, I put myself in that vulnerable position, but I don't think they, indirectly trying to correct somebody, which is probably, I don't know if that's okay or not okay, but it is what happened. (laughs) But I think, yeah, that's mostly why I wanted that person just to like, hey, do you, are you aware that you have a culture too? And, um, I mean, maybe he needs to share more than just one analogy. <laughs> but, uh, or even just, I think the other thing I find myself doing that a lot of people do is, even if you're going to share your analogy, it'd be cool 
something that I think could have been cool is they, they can explain, here's what I mean by this analogy, here's what it looks like, and then they explain the details behind everything. And um, I notice that a lot from a lot of Latino speakers when I go see them or when I watch other pastors and preachers who are coming from, who are from different cultures, they do that all the time. They communicate their culture and explain their culture every single day. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think this person is even aware that this is, I don't know, actually, I don't know if they're aware that this is their culture or let alone can they explain to me, here's what I mean in my culture and what, what I'm trying to say through this analogy. Um, mm-hmm. And so... It was just a reality that I was like, oh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get, I don't I still have to Google it probably. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, I loved that you shared it and I felt like it opened the door for others in the room to share some of the things that they were, how they were experiencing the process too. And I learned so much from the things that were shared just in that I don't know how long it was, 10 or 15 minutes. I just thought, wow, this is, this is a lot. And, and I'm learning it too. And I, and I think what you're saying about like how you've gone to hear Latino uh, people speak and they are, they're explaining like their cultural analogy that they're using, but for majority culture speakers, we just, we have never thought about it because we haven't had to. Mm-hmm. And, and we do need to start thinking about it. Like what, what are we communicating and how are we communicating it and how is it coming up across? One thing I have told people that um, there's two types of communication style or what I learned. There's multiple ways to communicate. Obviously, there's body language, verbals, nonverbals, all the other stuff, right? But they, I, there's this article that I read and I try to try to help people understand a little bit is the idea of affiliate communication versus competitive communication. Affiliate communication Mm -hmm. is more like they they value the process, they're valuing collective thinking, they're valuing like everybody making a decision together, they'd rather go slower for for everybody to to be on the same page versus competitive speaking, which is more individualistic. They want to get your input, but the one person is allowed to make the decision by themselves. They They don't care about the everybody being involved in the decision-making process. Um, and it's, it's assertive. It's, like, very, like, um, direct. Um, and so it's cool that as, as, as a brown person, I've had to learn how to speak both. Like, I can be assertive and direct. Like, obviously, I had done that with that person, even though it took a lot of energy, but I did it. I learned it, and I know how to do it. It's how I survived and crew for so long. But I also know how to talk very collective. And I know that when I'm with my Latino people and my Latino students, I'm not going to be talking to them how I would talk to somebody who is from crew and is white. I'm just, they're just not the way that I would talk. Don't come at my parents like I would not be able to do that. You know? <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. and that's okay. I've learned two different, and I know how to switch it, right? We That's what we call code switching, go back and forth. My question mm-hmm. in a lot of ways when it comes to leadership, and I think what I challenge a lot of times is I've learned how to talk both ways. If you want to be multicultural, what are we doing about uh, systemically teaching leaderships how to do the same thing? Because a leader mm-hmm. would be able to understand and speak and 
both of them and I would value both. And so leadership in general is, is saying, well, if you can talk competitively, then you can become a leader. And that's not accurate. Like if you can talk, I would rather be like, if you can talk competitively, but if you can also talk collectively and demonstrate that to me, then I would say that person is way more qualified to be a leader than somebody who only knows how to communicate in one, in one style. Hmm. And so hmm. in some ways it kind of makes me feel like, oh, in leadership, we need a we need to set the, we're, we're setting the bar too low by saying that we're just going to, that only somebody that can speak competitively and can function in that style is deemed worthy or is capable of leading. Mm-hmm. Um, both cultures know how to plan strategically. It just feels confusing to the other person if they've never seen strategy in a different style. <laughs> but they both know how to plan. I mean, we get things done, and otherwise, how do these other countries function, right? But um, So they know how to do it. It's, they know how to strategize. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that they're communicating. They know the process, and so they just they make time for the process that, they, that they're valuing in that moment. And so the style mm-hmm. that we have right now in these meetings is competitive. It's very much, I mean, the first sentence is, we want your input, but we're going to make the decision. You're here to help give input. (laughs) That's communicating, hey, I'll I'll hear your feedback, but we don't need your decision-making in this, in this, um, the ultimate Decision-making isn't determined by you. It's determined by the individual or whoever, by the few people. It's not a collective process. I get it. We don't have... Got it. For some reason, they don't have time or whatever. Maybe they want to change it up, and that's okay. I think they do eventually. I think we ended up getting an email about that. So I think they're trying to change the communication. But in that moment, in that room, it's pretty competitive. because, And you have one person directing all the conversation, all the questions. Um, even the styles of questions that are being asked is pretty like A B equals C, <laughs> like linear. Yeah, mm-hmm. very linear. It's decision making power and communication styles. I yeah, mean, do you feel like there's spaces within crew where we're talking about that? My teams. I mean, if you're in my team, I'm gonna talk about it <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um. There is a few spaces, not a lot. I mean, I've, and it's just starting. I think it's just, it's just started happening. I think maybe, I mean, I've been on staff for, for a while now. So then I think maybe like five years ago, it kind of started happening more. Like, well, for sure, like since 2000, the conference is 2015, where they, they had the cultural, the first, like, talk about race and ethnicity up on stage in Moby I think that kind of was like a slap in the face for people to like wake up a bit and I think since then it's kind of progressed more of like oh yeah we want to be this way you know so I think they're learning yeah I don't really it's hard for people to live it out unless we're continuing talking about it and a lot of it to be honest is unless you let POCs kind of lead it for you because they know how to do it and so they grew up. Their, I mean, I we grew up. I grew up my whole life going back and forth. So it's exhausting, but it's easier for those people because they've had you know 15, 20 years plus learning this. You know, but I've seen it done. I, I've also seen white people do it too. Like for sure, I'm not just saying that. But um, and even my teammates, Kai, Lauren, and Tom, are pretty co- community. More collective in their leadership and in their thinking, and which is what allowed the partnerships to actually work, is because they are 
already doing those things. Um, and so I see it some in, the, in those spaces. And usually people that have some sort of cultural competency will start trying to put it into practice. I, I think I know friends and people that do it because there's a specific group of us that will talk about it a lot. <laughs> and so with collectivism, collectivism, in order for us to be, even to talk about race and ethnicity, for example, um, we've had to have safe groups of people that I have to have to process and talk to about um, to eventually make something happen. So as a Latina, I know I will never lead like a white man. It's just never going to happen because just look at me. I'm never, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but w- one thing that I know how to do is I know how to lead from my identity and my community's culture, collective. So I already start thinking of like, okay, how am I going to include other people? Who do I need to bring alongside these conversations? So even though I have seen the, the disparity or like Cruz lack of cultural competency for a long time, I think some of the things are just starting to surface now because I there's enough people that you go and you talk individually to and they're like, okay, yes, I think you kind of think like me. And then let me, let's go talk to somebody else. And then like eventually a group, positive people form that have kind of helped carry some of this stuff. Um, and then you talk mm-hmm. to the right people that are in those like decision-making powers that can change those things. And so... When I see I see those people who are doing that, who have actually caused those changes, those people are probably thinking more collective because they did. They went in, they asked the questions to the pe- to people of color, they sat in it with them, they were in solidarity with them, they practiced it out, and then now they're like making these decisions based of based on group consensus. So there is people which I just those are the people that I call allies or people that um, are ethnic minorities that. Um, yeah, that are for more of a collective thinking and, like, try to make decisions with, with each other in mind. Dina, what do you think of Crew 19? Huh. <laughs> I try not to think about it right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> there was some good, some really good goods and some really... I mean, there's always stuff we can grow in, but I think... So I'll highlight some things that I thought were amazing. First of all, I would have never in a million years dreamed this could ever happen when I first joined staff. <laughs> so, I mean, I remember joining staff and being, I was the seventh Latina to join staff, like full time. And I remember thinking like, man, there's like just this room, Moby is so white, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, and even knowing, so we have this, I don't know if a lot of people might not know this, we have this group me with all the POCs in it, and it was like 260, and it just kept on increasing over time. And I was like, whoa, just to even know that there are these many brown people in this audience just felt like this is cool because first of all, that never existed before, you know, so it's growing over time. Like, I mean, I've been, go- my first conference was in 2011, and that was very different. Even just comparing it to the, it was that year where they did the legacy of Crew because Crew was celebrating its birthday in 2011. Uh, and so they were talking about legacy and stuff like that. And then they talked about history this time in conference. Um, and I felt like, oh, this was more realistic <laughs> than the way that they pictured it. I mean, I, I get it. We're trying to celebrate our birthday. We're trying to celebrate the accomplishments of crew. But it was very much, it was more realistic this time around. So that felt more real because I was like, oh, yeah. I feel like sometimes as a Latina 
woman from El Salvador, whose family's from El Salvador, I know my full history. I know the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know what I mean? And I live and I carry both of those things. And so it was surprising to me when we don't talk about history that way. And even the way that we people will tell me, you need to shift your story so it would have a happier ending or, you know what I mean? So it's just... It's cool that they did that. I thought that was cool that they could say, like, we don't have it together and we need to, and we're okay sharing the fullness of our history, which was cool. Um, I also, disclosure, like, I guess, not disclosure, but um, what's it called? Some context. I had just come from the impact training. So Mm. sitting in Crew 19 was definitely, I had, like, little patience for a lot of BS. Can you cuss in this? I'm sorry. You can... (laughs) I'm sorry, you can delete yeah. that later. <laughs> but, um, there's, I just had little tolerance for ignorance. <laughs> but um, say so it was good just to hear um, Sandra, Sandra come speak. That, to me, was amazing. I'd never seen a woman in crew that's Latina. I mean, let alone a Latino sometimes come speak in crew 19 in general. So to me, that was just like, whoa, like that was so cool. Um, I love that they were talking about justice just because that is my reality. Like that was one of the biggest issues that I had coming into LA was that I didn't even know how to live that out. And so I know it's a serious problem that we don't know how to do both. Um, and it almost, I felt like it set me up in some ways for failure in some of the misses that I had when I was struggling in life here. Mm. So it was good to see, to just even hear that, that we do need to be thinking about both the justice side along with like the gospel, like sharing our faith, not just sharing it and sharing the good news, but also like choosing to live that out. So I really like that. And I also like it was so cool to hear James White because I have heard James White. He's come and spoken before, and Daryl they've spoken at um, at least James White. He's spoken at Crew before, and so I just it was cool to see him just like speak his full self within his fullness. I love that. I love that because I feel like yeah, like I think I could see even just how hard it is for us as. POCs and somebody who's such a great leader, you know, still like we have to filter things and to hear him be unfiltered and say the fullness of the gospel and like share the with with his story in it, with the the history of slavery in it, I think was just more realistic and it was more authentic. Um, And I can I can and I was able to like I can relate to that. I don't feel like that's a strange concept for me. I did feel like a little bit, but not too bad about all, all the white people in that room that I had never heard about this because I'm like, dang, that sucks for them because they've never heard about this. So they're probably feeling very culture shocked right now. And but at the same time, I was like, that's been my whole life. So I don't feel too bad. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I did think about it. I like that's why I like for a second I was like, oh man, I feel bad for that one person. But at the same time, I just was like, man, but this is reality every day. Like we've been dying out here every day in the hood. You know what I mean? It's just like I just want you to hear mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, I think a little bit afterwards felt really hard. Was like knowing that all these things are true, but we're still having to come back 
to our neighborhoods. You know, every day I still have to come to the, my reality. I still live in the inner city. I live in in my neighborhood. And so... Where you grew up? Yeah, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So, been out here for the last two years, and I love it, but it's also hard. There's always a, some crisis. So it's hard to know... I think there's a part of me that feels like it's we're, we 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 don't have time. Like you just need to know this already, so that we can you can come help. You know, or you can do something. You can try to change systems. And so, in some ways, I do feel like I'm still feeling a little bit. I can feel impatient sometimes because I feel like sometimes it's just like we're just talking about this. We're just talking about it, and we need to just start doing stuff too. Like when are we gonna move? into praxis you know and so I think with majority culture they like to you know well I don't know if you know but I feel like a lot of times people they want to have some sort of good case and they have to intellectually understand everything before that they can get on board with doing something you know um, instead of just like dude it just feels wrong you know so I need to just do something like it feels wrong for people to be stuck in cages so I need to do something I don't need to know if it's biblical or not just do like there's no sense for that you know <laughs> you don't need to like have all the theology behind to, to just know that this is wrong you know something like that mm. and so well it's like what Sandra said about Sandra said we have been discipled and formed in a theology of intellect and intention not a theology of embodiment and action mm-hmm I and agree. the majority culture has erred on one side. Yeah. And it's the intellectual in, intention part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is true. I think I just see that every day, day in and day out. And so, and then also just feeling very exposed. That's the other thing. Like, as an ethnic minority, dude, this is my reality every day. It's so interesting to me because as I talk to more majority culture, they do just as this is their work. They clock in and they clock out, you know, and they have the ability to do so. They can go back to their hometown. You know, my hometown is my mission field. Like, it is right next to it. Like, I cannot avoid it, so I need to just fix it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, or I just need to do something because... It's my cousin, it's my it's my mom, it's my dad, it's my family, it's my people that come to church with me. It's like it's the people I went to high school with, the people I grew up with. It's um yeah, it's their family members, you, you know, and um so I think in some ways I do just feel very exposed because we just shared like it just felt like we just shared I mean, not collect. What I mean by we, I mean like does these speakers that are ethnic minorities to share all these things with you, um, and at the end you still have a choice whether I I choose to live this out or not. Do you know what I mean? So it, it feels very like, it, very vulnerable. It's like yeah, you're very exposed. You just shared all these hard things and these needs, and people can choose to reject you in that even in your need, you know, or not. Like, they still have a choice, you know. We don't. We And so it just feels very vulnerable. It feels like, and I feel like I walk into that room and I don't know how people are feeling in that room. Like, are they feeling like, yes, we're for you 100%. Or if they're judging me just because now I'm brown and they're like, they're assuming all these things about me because I'm Latina. You know, there's, yeah. 
she's uh, like I don't know just the assumptions and the stereotypes that come with with that and so it's very vulnerable and I think for me it's just emotionally exhausting um Especially this is not just, I mean, since 2015, when we started having those conversations, I think before people could see me and they're like, oh, yeah, she's whatever. But now I feel like people see me Oh, they see who I am and they see all the context behind it. And so and and it's two things. People can respond yay or nay to that. Right. So versus before I could just pretend (laughs) that you kind of go along with it and I still can deal I can handle my family or my situations on my own. I mean, that's versus now. It's like uh, I, I know that you can, you have a choice, and every time you choose not to, you know knowing, you know. <laughs> and so it just sucks. It's just hard. I have to be okay with people's responses and that they're on the journey too and learn to be patient with people. And so which is rough <laughs> because there's a lot of hurt behind those behind being patient it's like you're telling somebody to be patient but you've also been out here like struggling for the last 30 years you know <laughs> so um so it's a different kind of patience that they're asking me that I just don't have capacity sometimes to give so I think sometimes I think in my head I just want to be like can you just give me grace if I'm a little bit upset right now (laughs) anyways those were some of my initial feelings and thoughts I asked Dina about her involvement with the upcoming round of the Senior Leadership Initiative which is Crew's leadership development program designed to identify equip develop and coach emerging leaders so when's your first module October, October 20-something. How are you feeling about that? I feel better about it now. I, f- I feel like I was coming in a little nervous because I was, um, yeah, I was a little scared as into, like, what kind of leadership is being formed within me? Like, what, what type of development? When you say leadership, do you mean white man leadership? kind of thing I know I probably sound really skeptical but by now like it's just like after everything that I've been through in life I just need some grace with my skepticism (laughs) I just enter in everything like should I trust you or not and why should I trust you can you prove to me that I can trust you um and I wish that I wasn't like that sometimes because I am like a I, um, I'm a two in the Enneagram, so I, I, I want to believe the best in people. I just want to love people well. But also I feel like I've just experienced a lot of hurt within, um, within these organizations. And so I think that's where my, my mistrust comes from a lot. Like, um, so I think even coming into SLI, <laughs> I came in a little skeptical. But thankfully, they responded really well. They're like, yeah, we want that you you will have you come to the right place. And I feel like I think that was really like hopeful. And all my friends who are people of color and all my leaders, they they that have gone through it. They really loved it. So I feel like, okay, (laughs) I'll give this a shot. (laughs) But um, yeah, 
I was like, I mean, if if it's gonna be intent, like if it's just gonna be white men leading all this bunch of stuff, then I'm just gonna go find other Latino CEOs and go hang out with them. <laughs>